0: Hi, it's Becca with Tour Guide Tell All. I wanna just take a moment to say thank you to our patrons and supporters, the people listening to this podcast. It just means the world to us. And we really, really love hearing from our listeners. We got a really great email from Leslie and she was telling us how much her daughter, Sarah, loves the podcast. So I just wanna give a little shout out to Sarah. I wanna thank her for listening. She is a history nerd just like us. And uh, she also likes to geek out about her favorite historical figures. So I feel already like Sarah and I would be best friends. Sarah is taking part in her senior year of high school right now, which I can't even imagine being a senior in high school right now. So Sarah, we're with you. We support you and all of those who are going through these big life moments during this time. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It means the world to us. I hope you and your mother and your family have a really happy holidays. And thank you again for listening. uh, And thank you to everybody who continues to support Tour Guide Tell All. The tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the darker and more scandalous side of American history. And who boy, do we have a topic for today. We're doing it. We're going all in. But before we talk about our topic, I am Becca. I'm Rebecca. And, we're and we are the Rebecca's.
1: We got that one right. That was good. That's
0: pretty good. I'm proud of us. So we are here as we're barreling towards the end of 2020. And we've been doing this podcast since March. This started at the beginning of quarantine and it has just continued through this year, this project. And really from day one, when we talked about starting a podcast, we said, obviously, we're going to do an episode on Warren G. Harding. Because he is so ripe for discussion, uh, not just uh, his personal life, which has a lot, but his presidency, his his wife, everything about him has so much good things to talk about. And then we said we were going to do Warren G Harding, and then we just kept pushing him off and pushing him off and pushing him off. And he was just so special. We wanted to wait until the right moment. And we feel that this is it. Yes. And this is that Consider moment. Consider this an early holiday gift for you, all our listeners.
1: This is our holiday present for you, dear listeners. The best. The OG. The original scandal gangster. Warren Harding. I tell people this on my tours, and I think that this is true. He is the most underratedly scandalous president to the United States. Because most people are like, Warren who? He was president? Hmm. Didn't he die in office? Hmm. That's all I know. And you're just missing so many cool things about Warren Harding.
0: <laughs> yes, so uh, a little, a little bit of a warning on this episode. This episode is gonna, it's gonna have some adult content because Warren G. Harding could not, spoiler alert, keep it in his pants. So.
1: No, he had what they call a zipper problem, which we'll get into that in a little <laughs> bit. And he's so great, you guys. I'm so excited. But to start, we're going to start an unusual place because most of the time when you talk about presidents, you know, their first lady is kind of an afterthought. But since we're particularly interested in women's history, yay, and because his first lady is fascinating and she's really kind of the power behind the throne, I guess, as it were. I think we should start with Florence. Yes.
0: So I think an important piece to understanding Warren is to understand the woman who becomes his wife, which is Florence Kling. She will become Florence Harding. And I'll be honest, when I first started guiding, all I really knew about Florence Harding is she was Warren G. Harding's wife. And you kind of At least the impression I had of her was sort of this, like, meek, behind-the-scenes kind of character, didn't really do anything. She wasn't a first lady that I found that interesting. And then once I started developing a first lady's tour, and once I started learning more about her life, uh, she's really, really fascinating. So she's born just as the Civil War begins in Ohio from a pretty humble background. uh, Her father does take an interest in her education and teaches her things like business and finance and accounting, which are not really skills girls were learning at this time. He's also, though, a real hard ass with her. He beats her. She grows up in a sort of an abusive home. So it's not too surprising that at the age of 19, she is going to elope. She's going to run away with a man who's older than her and not exactly the kind of person her parents would have chosen. And it's not Warren G. Harding. Uh, The man that she runs away with is a man named Pete DeWolf, which is a telling name. (laughs) Pete DeWolf, they run away together and they get married in this sort of quick wedding. uh, And then sure enough, within like nine months, she is pregnant, Uh, you know, they jump right on into it and she is going to have a child. Pete DeWolf was not a very good husband. He was an alcoholic, he was a thief. He would try to rob a train uh, at one point during their marriage not a good dude. And so pretty much a year and a half into this marriage, she has left him because he's no good. And so here she is. She's 21 years old. She has a child and she's got to go back and she doesn't want to go back to her father. She doesn't want the I told you so talk. So she goes back and she sets up her own life, which was not easy for a single woman uh, with a child at this time. She starts teaching piano lessons. She's a pretty talented piano player. She said she played every single day for three years until her fingers bled and she could do it in her sleep. So she's a a talented piano player. She teaches piano lessons. Her mother helps her financially, but she refuses to go back into her parents' house and live there. Uh, And eventually she manages to get a divorce from Pete DeWolf, who really was just like a no-good Nick. And then she starts taking a job. She starts working at a newspaper, and this is where she is going to meet Warren G. Harding, a man who is not at this point on a track to greatness, we would say. He is perfectly mediocre, (laughs) just like perfectly so. He's middle-class mediocrity at this point.
1: I read about him and I feel like this is the most true statement about Warren Harding that has ever happened. One of his biographers said that he he starts out life as a small town newspaper editor and that was as far as his talents should have taken him in life. That was the sort of summit of his intellectual ability. But... Florence decides differently. She decides he's not going to be a small town newspaper editor for a while. So
0: she will begin working at the a paper that Warren G. Harding runs, The Daily Star. She is put in charge of the circulation department. And because of her head for business, it flourishes. So it's very clear that she's a woman. When she puts her mind to something, she can get results. And once she sort of gets everything cleaned up with DeWolf, she gets divorced from him. Her father ultimately agrees to adopt her daughter, so her daughter now bears her maiden name, Kling, no uh, does not have the DeWolf name in any way. And so she's now clear to pursue a new marriage. And she's still relatively young at this point. She's just uh, in her late 20s. Uh, and she decides, this man who runs this newspaper, I'm going to take him and I'm going to make him president of the United States. She basically sets her sights on Warren G. Harding, and she decides that she's going to put all of her cleverness on all of her training, all of her desire to get out of small town Ohio, and she puts it on him. And she would say she had only one real hobby in her life, and it was her husband. So every step along the way, Florence is driving the train. She writes his speeches. She makes connections for him. She organizes meetings. Uh, She helps him make decisions about where to run and what to run and what to do, where to go campaign, how to campaign. Uh, She is going to be the one who really utilizes new technology. She recognizes the powers of things like radio and the the moving pictures at this point to really propel somebody. And she understands the importance of celebrity. Uh, So she is going to be a really key component To Harding's entire career. She's not just significant as First Lady, she is significant in that she gets Warren to the White House.
1: I feel like she takes the raw material and really just shapes it. And Harding, it should be said, one of the things she sees in him, he does seem to have had some kind of charm, and we'll get i think we're into that in a little bit but he does there seems to have been some sort of magnetism about him um and he's also pretty good looking like we'll put a picture in the show notes and particularly as he ages he has this silver fox thing going on like you can kind of see it so i feel like she she recognizes that it's a man's world he's good looking he has some sort of charisma and she can just do the rest and she kind of does and
0: he has like the right kind of background the right kind of experience like everything on paper checks off And so with her brains and kind of his credential, as it were, she can really push him in the direction she wants. And their uh, relationship, I think, is pretty obvious from the get-go. She does not wear a wedding ring, which I find really interesting, but not so interesting as their marriage goes along. But also he called her the boss and she called him Sonny which really denotes what I would not say is like a romantic partnership, but rather a business partnership or a kind of maternal paternal relationship.
1: I think it's notable that they don't have any kids like she was still young enough.
0: And and she could,
1: she could, you know, and and I I feel like she just that part of her life was over. I feel like she kind of got burned and was like, All right, I'm over it. This guy, we're gonna go places. And it seems like a partnership and he seems to have respected her. Um, I don't know if he loved her, but he seems definitely, I mean, you could not not respect her intellect and, you know, she was going to make him president and I think he believed her, too. So,
0: they get married. Uh, She, as her sort of first task, tries to make this newspaper, the Marion Star, a much better newspaper than it is and he is going to not always be around. He actually suffers, Warren G. Harding, a brief sort of spell of depression and he spends time in a sanitarium and she's running the show. She's the one who's out there really making the paper tick. She's hiring the editors. She's approving the reporters. She's even so much as like trying to get the newsboys to increase their sales. So she's like out there hustling everybody. And when the Spanish-American War breaks out, she is basically develops the first wire reports. So she's like, first thing we're going to do if you're going to be a politician is you have to be a successful businessman. And so that's what she does. She makes his business a success. And he's not even there for any of that. He's pretty much gone. And then once he comes back and she's sort of like, all right, the first step is you need to run for state senate. So she does that. She does the entire campaign. She raises the money. She picks the seat he's going to run for. And she's like, this is the first step on the checklist of things you need to accomplish. And she gives him some good advice. Maybe not so good advice. She gives him some very good political advice, which he really clings to, which is make no promises, make no enemies. You need to be as neutral and pragmatic as possible.
1: Yeah, I feel like I I don't know. I've never been able to figure out exactly if she tells him or this is, I think, also part of his personality. But she seems to see that he's pretty morally flexible politically, morally, just kind of not, he doesn't really have a fixed position and he wants to be everything to everybody. That seems to be his big thing. Like he doesn't have a a firm stance on really anything. And this is an example of that is going to be his relationship to prohibition. Warren Harding, as we talked about on the presidential drinking episode, Warren Harding was a big drinker but he was very happy to support the prohibition amendment. He supported it first when he was in Ohio state politics. He's really going to get his start because there was a, the governor at the time, Myron Herrick was opposed to prohibition. He was very vocal about this. And even though he was a popular guy, the anti-saloon league, which was the big prohibition pressure group, goes after Herrick, but he loses in a landslide and that's going to open the door to Warren Harding. And don't think for one second that Harding did not learn that lesson. He saw what happened to Herrick? And was like, yeah, sure, Prohibition's great. Yeah, we,
0: and we see this sort of all along the way when it comes to things like the Prohibition movement. We see it with his relationship to suffrage, even though Florence Harding herself supports the suffrage movement. Obviously, she's a woman of her own in many ways. He is so, so careful of indicating support enough but not so much that he's obligated. Uh, He doesn't want to be targeted the way Woodrow Wilson's targeted uh, as president by the movement. So he does enough overture when he needs to, inviting the suffragists to come and speak with him or address address his campaign. But he doesn't put anything in writing that really obligates him to support them. And it's such a, you could call it politically savvy, but it's also such a sort of yellow-bellied way to reach power. So he is going to make his way pretty rapidly, I would say, through the Republican Party ranks. He starts in the state legislature. Pretty quickly, Florence realizes that governor is a path to nowhere at this point. In the early 20th century, it's really all about the Senate. So when there's an opportunity to run for a Senate seat, she says, forget being governor of Ohio. Speak be governor of Ohio. You want to be a senator. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Within the Republican Party, he is very savvy. We talk about this a little bit in the 1912 election episode. But 1912, there was that big party split, uh, and there was that splitting off of progressive Republicans to supporting Theodore Roosevelt. Harding looks and says, well, you know, I supported Roosevelt in the past— But the path forward is not going to be this progressive third-party ring. And so he rides the Taft train, but in such a way that he doesn't do anything that really offends the progressive side. So when Taft loses to Wilson, and all of a sudden there's a bit of this vacuum in the party, Harding is seen as this Republican senator who could go places.
1: Very much a rising star. And he does this really by not making anybody too mad at him and not sticking out in particularly any big way. He is um, seen as sort of this rising star and they're going to talk about him running for president as 1920 approaches. At that time, presidents could still run for a third term. It wasn't a law yet. And Wilson is very ill with a, he had a stroke. So he's not going to run for a third term. So that's not going to happen. The Democrats pick this very colorless very conservative, moderate Democrat named Cox, and we don't have a president Cox, so you know that he doesn't win. And I feel like in 1920 it was not going to be a Republican or a, a Democratic year. They knew it. Wilson wasn't especially popular, so the the Republican nomination is going to be where it's at. And Harding was not the first choice. No,
0: it was a big camp, a uh, big field of candidates. There were quite a number of people in the mix. And, you know, in the first few ballots, Harding's bringing in a couple of votes, not really anything to write home about. But as these things used to go with these political conventions, the longer these ballots go on and people start consolidating, it really boils down to a group of men smoking cigars in a back room. And this group of men smoking cigars in a back room are going to decide that out of the viable candidates, Harding is the best option. And you could perhaps say that they choose him because of his flexibility. He's going to be a party hack. He will do what the party tells him. And he's got the charisma. He's got, um, certainly, I think they see his wife as an asset because she knows how to run a campaign, knows how to keep him on track. But he's really chosen, not by the delegates on the floor, but by the party movers and shakers in a back room. But it takes something like 11 or 12 ballots to get Harding to the nomination
1: yes and then he becomes president in a
0: landslide it's like the election of 1920 we never have to do a podcast on this one because it's like from the beginning harding is just a runaway uh like you said there's a swing away from wilson and the democrats in general uh he runs on a return to normalcy which is a slogan i hate (laughs) because it just sounds so awkward grammatically
1: and he's not like he plays footsie with the suffragists, but isn't really committed to them. And this is going to be the first election women can vote. But that's not apparent until pretty late in the campaign. If you listen to our suffrage pod, like women don't get the vote until towards the end of August. So he's kind of non-committal about suffrage because he, he, wanna... he
0: lets them come and talk to him while he's campaigning. But he's really careful about not saying anything specific. And honestly, if. Tennessee had not ratified, and this fight had continued into his presidency, I don't think there's any guarantee he would have taken a big stand to support the 19th Amendment, frankly.
1: Nope. I don't. I completely agree. I think he was fine that women could vote because they voted overwhelmingly for him, but I don't think it would have really bothered him either way. And I don't think had women not gotten the vote in Tennessee in 1920— I don't think he would have put any pressure on anybody to make sure they got it
0: for four But he becomes president. And I mean, it's just like, talk about a mandate to lead. He's overwhelmingly elected, huge electoral college victory, one of the biggest um, percentages of the popular vote ever, even today, if you do it by percentage as opposed to to sheer number of votes. Uh, And he becomes president. And his presidency is, I don't want to say unremarkable, because there are things to remark upon. But I don't think today we can look back and see Harding as a particularly effective president.
1: Harding's a bad judge of character. Like, he just is. He gives a cabinet post to a guy he met on a plane. (laughs) Like, they sat next to each other, struck up a conversation. Harding's like, hey, you're pretty cool. Why don't you be in my cabinet? This is how we decided important government things. He had a guy in his cabinet who was actively operating a liquor still, making money off of it while prohibition was the law of the land like very blatantly illegal things the guy he points to the treasury had huge interests. andrew mellon had huge interests in all sorts of really illegal let things. let
0: me take literally the like the richest man in america and put him in charge of the treasury yes yeah,
1: so that he can entrench his own wealth and that of his rich friends and sort of screw over everybody else and that's basically what andrew mellon does there's limited oversight. And Harding's just like, yeah, you know, sounds good. And he gets involved in all kinds of scandal, some of which isn't deserved. I feel like Teapot Dome is kind of not... We'll get to Yeah, I think now.
0: we have to touch on Teapot Dome, even though I think at the end of the day, Harding is, like you said, more a victim of a being a bad judge of character. And I think relying too much on nepotism in terms of friends of friends and friends of the party, instead of really judging who is of a good character and who's going to do these jobs. Um, but Teapot Dome is going to be a big scandal in his presidency. It's going to be a big issue. And it's essentially it's a bribery scandal. He has people taking bribes, which is really, really bad. It was considered up until about Watergate, right, the biggest political scandal in American history. And it's bad for his reputation. It, it really is.
1: Hardings, I think he supports a number of things that are really bad, like he's opposed to bonus payments to World War One veterans. Like, can you imagine that happening now? He'd be tarred and feathered. He's in favor of these really massive tax cuts that make the 20s really big, but are going to have some really like long lasting effects in terms of the Great Depression. Which he does not live to see. So he doesn't really get as much blame, I think, for that as perhaps he should. He's anti-immigration, anti-labor. He's not especially like, he's not really pro-women. He's just kind of, eh. and he's not, and I don't know how to say this in a polite way. There is no polite way to say this. He's not the smartest guy. He'll just come right out with it. He's certainly not the dumbest man we've ever had be president, but he's certainly not an intellectual. He is kind of self-involved, I think, also. that, that we're, We'll talk about that more in a minute, but he's just not a good judge of character, I think is where we can go with him. I think
0: he's a perfect example of what starts to be, I think, a political problem in the late 19th century into the 20th century of there's so many people behind the scenes in these parties pulling the strings. And Harding could not be a better puppet because he's, you know, got what you need to win elections and to to, to win people over. But he's not going to push back and he will take advice and he will listen. And once Florence gets into the White House, She is very consumed by her own projects, because now that she's first lady, she can do the things she cares about. And while she obviously cares about her husband's career, she doesn't have a lot of say on things like his cabinet and his political choices. So she really throws herself into her own projects, which is primarily caring for veterans, which she was very involved with hosting veterans events at the White House and going to Walter Reed to read to veterans sometimes once a week. Um, So that was really her passion. But you sort of have this guy, like you said, who's not that smart. He's not that interested in the actual day-to-day of this job. And you've got a lot of big players in the Republican Party with their own vested interests, and they're sort of acting through him. And this is why corruption runs so rampant in his administration.
1: I also feel like Harding is one of those people That listens to the last person that talks to him. The debate issue goes back and forth and the last guy who gets to him is the, okay, you sound great. You know what you're talking about. And he kind of goes with that. He
0: literally says that about when it comes to Mellon and these tax cuts, right? He says, well, I talked to Andrew Mellon and the finance guys and they tell me the tax cuts sound really good and I agree with them. Then I go talk to the anti-tax cut guys and what they say is good. And it's like, well, yeah, because everybody's going to be promoting their point of view. You have to discern what is best. But he's not that kind of guy. No. And he is very, very distracted (laughs) while in office. Very
1: nice segue.
0: (laughs) Very distracted. (laughs) Very distracted. (laughs) So yeah, Harding... Harding is a man who has more on his mind, frankly, than politics.
1: Yeah. He, um so, <laughs> here's, the nut, here's the nuts and bolts of this, guys. Harding has numerous affairs all the time. And not just when he's president, either. They start from the beginning of his marriage. And like we talked about earlier, him and his wife seem to be more of a business arrangement, a political partnership, then certainly a passion, uh, passionate match. And there doesn't really seem to be a lot of love there. There's probably respect, I would imagine. But this is not a passionate couple. They're in this for different things, which is fine, like no judgment.
0: And I think Florence is getting what she wants out of this relationship without necessarily needing him to be passionately in love with her. She's in it to get out, get, get out of Dodge. She's in it to have power and agency.
1: I think both of them get what they want out of this Mm -hmm. relationship, uh, to be fair. He, though, and it must have been part of their deal that he could kind of do what he wanted, sort of as long as he was discreet about it. And I feel like that's sort of not an uncommon expectation in those days. Like, you don't, as long as your husband is discreet, the wife sort of, you know, you expect discretion. And Florence Harding... Did not get discretion. She got really a lot of scandal. Uh, Florence is not super concerned. However, one of his f- one of his very long term relationships is with her best friend Carrie Fulton Phillips, from their hometown in Ohio. Carrie Fulton Phillips, who is herself married, and. Harding's affairs, there's a lot of them, and some of them seem to be one-offs and some of them seem to be longer term, but Carrie Fulton Phillips is a long-term affair. They seem to have been together for over 10 years, probably coming up on 15. Closer
0: to 20. It starts to peter off when he gets the presidency, part of it because of some of her political opinions, which he doesn't share, but we're talking about probably close to 20 years Certainly that they knew each other and were close, but at least probably, I'd say, 18 to 20 years of having an affair.
1: And this is like a hot, hot, hot affair. Like, they're doing this under the noses of both of their spouses. And there does, in fairness to Harding, does appear to be some love there. Like, this is not just, um, there appears to be affection there. They appear to really have gotten along. Uh, I mean, they are together for 18 years that's bespeaks some kind of affection. Somewhere. Well, and I
0: think there are probably some ways that she reminds him of Florence in the good ways. She's intelligent. She's smart. She's um, worldly. And so I think it's not just physical for them. I do think there's quite a bit of, a, of an emotional connection as well. But I mean, this is like they live in the same town. People know that this is going on. People in Marion know what's happening. Also
1: he's not faithful to her either. Yeah, of course. So that's worth mentioning. Like he's clearly not faithful to his wife, but he's it's also it's not like she's his great love that he's like saving himself for this love this other woman. That's not what's happening here either. He there are other women kind of coming in and out. She just seems to be the constant for at least 15 years.
0: Uh, until World War 1 where her pro Germany um, <laughs> viewpoint becomes Harding, the man who likes to avoid conflict, is like, oh, this woman I've been seeing for all this time is really pro-Germany. This could be a problem. And that's kind of where we start to see this relationship peter off. But it also times out about the time that he's going to be the Republican nominee.
1: And she also tries to blackmail him, which I feel like is going to kill the romance (laughs) right there. Like, I don't know. (laughs) She basically, like, she sees his star on the rise. He's at this point a senator. And Basically, I think he, what my supposition is, reading between the lines, that he's trying to kind of give her the kiss off, and she's like, okay, I'll go, but, like, give me money. And Harding doesn't have money. I mean, he has his salary as a senator, but that's not, like, a huge amount of money. And she's threatening to go to the press and talk all about his infidelities, and he's like, this isn't good. And so what's a senator to do, Becca?
0: You're going to go to your party. Uh, especially if you are going to be um, accepting their nomination to be their candidate for president, you're going to go to the party, bigwigs, these guys who chose you in the smoke filled back room, and they're going to want to know your skeletons. And you're going to be like, well, I have some in my closet and Mm -hmm. mine is Carrie Fulton Phillips. And so he discloses this to the Republican party and the party does what I think anybody would do. They take Phillips and her husband, and put them on a slow boat to China. And I don't mean that euphemistically. No, they, that's literal. They send them on an extended tour of Asia and the Pacific. Like almost a two-year trip. Yeah.
1: Basically. This is completely
0: paid by the Republican Party. Yes. And off they go
1: and off they go. And basically it ends them they land in like Borneo uh, on election day with no newspapers so they can't possibly make a fuss, you know? Like they're miles from the nearest English speaker and much less if reporter. And even reporter
0: had heard some gossip about a woman named Carrie Phillips in Ohio. There's no way for reporters or journalists who might have been looking for some dirt on the the soon to be president. They couldn't get in touch with them. It's really ingenious. And then the Republican party will continue to pay Carrie For the rest of her life, she gets an annual stipend to keep her mouth shut. Which, nice work if you can get it, I guess. And should I just apologize, if any readers are shocked to hear that political parties have paid women off to be silent, I hate to disappoint you. (laughs) and Break the illusion.
1: So this doesn't bother Harding very much, though, because he and Carrie Phillips have been on the wane, you know, on the outs. And by this time, he has other fish to fry. You know there are other irons in the fire. First of all, he's running for president. Yeah. Uh, but second of all, he's having an affair with a his new mistress is a woman named Nan Britton. Woman's a stretch. Woman's a stretch. Yeah. Uh, apparently Harding has trouble moving outside of his hometown because like his like affair partners seem to be like from Marion, Ohio, and nowhere else. Nan Britton, her parents have been friends with the Hardings for decades. He's known her since she was essentially an infant. And she seems to have had some kind of teenage crush on her father's handsome friend, Warren Harding. Now, obviously, he's not interested in her because she's a kid. But then she grows up, and apparently Harding, like, really finds that difficult to resist. She's going to contact her father's friend, who is now a United States senator. And she goes to Washington and meets with him about a job. And boy, does she get one. She still seems to have had stars in her eyes for Warren Harding. And he's like, hey, you're pretty. And, you know, she's very young. She's about 20 in the grand tradition of older men everywhere, is seeking comfort in the. Yes, yeah, she,
0: she, her claim would be that it starts right when she graduates at 18, but the timeline's a little. Squidgy there, a murky. but either way, she is considerably younger than Warren G. Harding.
1: <sighs> and the affair goes on for a while. When he goes on the campaign trail to run for president, she goes with him. She poses as his niece. When the then the photographers ask, which is icky on any number of levels. At some point, uh, she is going to get pregnant. And so she bears him a love child uh she names the daughter elizabeth and harding it must be said does do the right thing he does pay child support but he doesn't want to meet his daughter he does however very much want to continue his affair with nan and their their affair continues until his death they she is snuck into the white house they meet at the apartments of friends this is a hot and heavy affair for years.
0: For probably the better part of a decade, really. And yeah, it's sort of interesting with Elizabeth in that he does not explicitly acknowledge that he has fathered this child. And yet there is money that flows to Nam Britain, essentially monthly, that one would have to say is child support. And so it, it's tricky because, you know, he never writes anything that says this is my child. But it's not too hard to put two and two together here. And the fact that he keeps this relationship going with Nan.
1: And so when he dies, Nan Britton, it doesn't, the child support payments stop because obviously, like, this is kind of under the table. And so Nan Britton doesn't have a lot of options. Like, she has financially been dependent on Harding for a while now. He was a pretty young man, uh, so she had anticipated that he would continue to support both her and their daughter for years. And so she doesn't quite know what to do. And so she takes what she feels like is the only option open to her, which is she's going to blackmail his grieving widow. Warren Harding was actually semi-popular when he dies. Dying makes him even more popular. And his wife is seen as beyond reproach. So it is not really a good plan to sort of publicly try to blackmail a grieving widow of a president of the United States. And Florence Harding is basically going to say, oh, honey, no. Florence Harding calls Nan Britton's bluff. And so Nan Britton says, "Okay." Harding dies in 1923. Nan Britton's going to go back and write a memoir with the
0: best title that you could possibly have for this kind of book. The President's Daughter. <laughs> she just cuts right to the chase. There's no there's no coyness in this title.
1: Nope. She gets right to it. Nan Britton is going to write this. It's the first sort of presidential kiss and tell of its type. Like we're kind of used to this today, but this is a big deal. Um, She is going to want to publish it uh, a few years later, 1927. But no respectable publishing house will touch this. Like this is considered scandalous and there's, you know, legal implications here. And so she has to basically have it self-published almost. It's a bestseller. And so I liken this to, like, the tabloids. Like, no one wants to admit to having read it, but, like, everybody secretly, like, is getting it from somewhere because it is a bestseller and people are reading it's it. It's
0: initially wrapped up, like, when you would order it, it came delivered, like, wrapped up in brown paper, like pornography.
1: <laughs> I love it. Like porn. And
0: Nan... Because Br- it's, it's racy. It's
1: scandalous, you guys. Nan Britain does not want For candor, she is very forthright about a number of things that I'm going to guess Harding would have wished she'd keep her mouth shut about. For example, uh, she talks all about this affair in great detail. Great detail. I mean, she talks
0: about losing her virginity to Orangey Harding. (laughs) Yes. Which that sentence alone should send chills like down your spine.
1: Yes. (laughs) She talks about how she was secreted into the White House many, many times, how at one point they were in danger of being discovered. And so he's going to bundle his mistress into a closet off of the Oval Office. And there, as she put it, the president and his sweetheart shared kisses in safety. So the president of the United States and his young mistress are basically doing it in a literal coat closet. In the, in the West Wing of the White House. This is real. This happened. In the book, she gives what one observer describes as a very accurate tr- depiction of the White House when seen from floor level. Just ponder that. You'll get that in a minute. It'll come back around. Um, all kinds of crazy detail. It is a sensation. And just when you think... And it, she makes a lot of money doing this, obviously. Uh, and just when you think Harding's <laughs> reputation can't sink any lower it's but it will lower. take
0: a little bit of time this is obviously a huge scandal Florence Harding will spend the rest of her life denying any of this basically saying that you know this is just someone trying to cash in uh, she will spend her whole life just like absolutely not this this is not real and Florence Harding dies not all that long after actually her own husband. So Florence Harding uh, doesn't have to live too long uh, hearing these terrible things or having to sort of face perhaps this terrible coverage of her husband. But you know, a few years go by.
1: And just in case you think we're making this up, by the way, I should mention, DNA testing obviously didn't exist at that time. So there was no way to conclusively prove the claims of paternity, but DNA testing has been invented since. And at some point afterward, they are going to do a test on the daughter. I believe she still has living children or grandchildren at this point. And they do a DNA test, and it is uh, confirmed that she is the daughter of Warren Harding. So this is not, Nan Britton's not making this up. She might be embellishing it, perhaps, although I. Kind of
0: I would out. argue that the book probably has some embellishment because she does need to sell copies. She fe- she is l- coming at this from a financial necessity. I don't question at all the validity of the relationship and much of what she says, but I have a feeling that some of it is, you know, gilded to sell books. But there is today scientific evidence that proves that uh he did in fact father Elizabeth uh, Britain. But then we get to the 1960s. So he's been dead for, you know, 35 years or so, but he's still fairly well regarded. uh, And his death had been a shock to the American people. And then (laughs) something is uncovered. So eventually
1: his original mistress, Carrie Fulton Phillips, dies. And when she dies, she has kept silent. Like she is paid off by the Republican Party, but she does keep her word. She remains silent about this affair. And when she dies, her children are settling her estate and all that normal things. And they uncover the, the letters that Harding sent to her hundreds of them and we unfortunately don't have her replies to him they either got burned or he destroyed them but we don't
0: i always describe it on tour that she was a very smart woman because she kept everything he wrote to her and he was a very dumb man because he destroyed everything she sent to him so all we have is his side of things
1: and her kids immediately recognize what they have and they want to publish these letters because her children have learned that you can buy things with money. For equally obvious reasons, his family, and he's got nieces and nephews, uh, he has no legitimate children, but he has nieces and nephews, they do not want these letters to see the light of day, which I think we can all understand. There's a lawsuit. So eventually it is decided, the courts decide, that these letters should be public, but not yet. So they're going to embargo them. They entrust them to the courts and trust these letters to the Library of Congress, and they put them under seal for fifty years, basically hoping that either no one will care in fifty years, or they'll be dead and no, they they won't be around to see the fallout. But <laughs> the fifty years was up, what three or four years ago? At this point,
0: um, they were published in two thousand and fourteen, so six years ago at this point, because it was nineteen sixty four was when the lawsuit was sort of. It was, the compromise was that the Library of Congress would safeguard these letters, embargo them, and they wouldn't see the light of day for 50 years. The idea being, by those who'd seen these letters, that they were so incendiary that no living relative should have to deal with the fallout. But I'm so lucky because I became a tour guide, and then they published these letters. So I am very, very fortunate.
1: (laughs) oh boy you guys they're published in 2014 and woo, they were right they are very incendiary and i for one am really glad that his the li- relatives who knew him did not live to see these because oh my god
0: i just want to say obviously we're going to give you a little taste of the letters but if you have not read them they're all digitized they're all online get yourself a bottle of wine get yourself in a comfy chair yeah. and have fun because 50 shades has nothing on warren g
1: also, make sure there are no impressionable eyes around your screen.
0: Yes. And I guess before we, we give some quotes, if this is a time, a, a content warning, I wish I could tell you that these are chaste, but they are not. And if you have not seen a picture of Warren G. Harding, this is also a good time to pull up an image of him so that while we read these quotes, you can have the, the visual of this man writing these letters. Should we just alternate? We can alternate until we run out of good quotes.
1: I am so excited for you guys to hear this. So first of all, I do want to issue a caveat, and this is something I say on my tours. There are hundreds of these letters. and
0: they There's a thousand yes. pages, at least, of, docu- of
1: documentation. They are over a range of topics. They take place over years. Some of them are boring. Uh, some of them are like, I went to the post True. office today and bought things. Uh, some of them are love poems. Like there's some real Victorian, like, how do I love thee kind of poems. Um, and so this is where why we say it's clear that there was some affection between the two of them. But most of them are just filthy. And it's so great. You want to start?
0: These are the sorts of things that today would pop up on your phone at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yes, these are like... Drunk texts. They're the booty texts of their day. And he
1: does something, and I'm going to try to say this without blushing. This is what I say on my tour. He does something that I've been told that some men do, which is he gives a nickname to his boy parts.
0: (laughs) See, I always say there are three characters in these letters. There's (laughs) Carrie, who is often naked in Warren G. Harding's descriptions. There's Warren, who is by his estimation a very vigorous and virile participant and then there is Jerry the third party which mm-hmm. is you have already alluded to is his nickname for his most favorite uh, appendage <laughs> so he calls him Jerry and Jerry makes appearances in these letters
1: the way I say it is Jerry pops up frequently in the letters no pun, <laughs> pun absolutely intended <sighs> See, you'll never look at a portrait of Warren G. Harding the same way again. He also nicknames her lady parts, by the way, Mrs. Puderson. I don't know why he does not explain. And I think we're just going to leave that there.
0: I'm not. I'm not touching that.
1: Nope. You want to go first? Go ahead. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, you know, we'll start with one that's perhaps not so, so scary, but gives you an idea of what a lot of these letters are like. I love you more than all the world and have no hope of reward on earth or hereafter. So precious as that in your dear arms, in your thrilling lips, in your matchless breasts, in your incomparable embrace. Aw. Oh, well, that's kind of nice. That's kind of nice.
1: Okay. I'm not, uh, all right. So here's, this is one of my favorites. Uh, honestly. I hurt with the insatiate longing until I feel that there will never be any relief until I take a long, deep, and wild draft on your lips and then bury my face on your pillowing breasts.
0: There's a lot of breast talk in these. <laughs> He's not
1: Lord Byron, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's try a poem and see see if you Ooh, think that yeah. he, he missed his calling. I love you garbed but naked more. Love your beauty to thus adore. I love it when you open eyes and mouth and arms and cradling thighs. If I had you today, I'd kiss and fondle you into my arms and hold you there until you said, Warren, oh Warren, in a benediction of blissful joy, I rather like that encore discovered in Montreal. Which is a reference to one of their little sex-cations. They would frequently invent reasons that they needed to travel together. So he would escort her to see her sick aunt. Or she would accompany him on a business endeavor, uh, acting as his secretary. And they were basically just little sex-cations for them to go and hook up. And that's what Montreal was. Fantastic.
1: (laughs) Um, This one is short and to the point. Uh, Wish I could take you to Mount Jerry. Wonderful spot.
0: Yeah, um, I like to another reference to Jerry. Oh, carry mine. You can see I have yielded and written myself into wild desire. I could beg and Jerry came and will not go says he loves you that you are the only only love worthwhile in all the world. And I must tell you so and a score or more of other fond things he suggests, but I spare you. He is so utterly devoted that he only exists to give you all. I fear you would find a fierce enthusiast today. I just think it's a good thing they didn't have camera phones back then, because otherwise, I think we'd see Jerry.
1: Oh, yeah. This is totally, yeah, there would totally be some, like, (laughs) unfortunate
0: and Sexting. I mean, friends, these go on and on and on. Uh, I think that gives you a taste of what he has written. But truly, if you have not read the letters they're of Warren so G. Harding to Carrie Phillips, you're missing out.
1: They're so great. <laughs> um, they're, it just, they just go on forever. And it's, uh, it's kind of reaffirming in a weird sort of way. You know, like you can... If you can't, if a president of the United States can't find love in the arms of his wife's best friend, I mean, what hope is there for the rest of us?
0: <laughs> and that is Warren G. Harding. And this
1: literally, like, I end my tour with this, and basically I say, and we're going to end it here because there's literally nothing else to say. There's, I can't top that. No one can top that. So that's kind of where we're going to leave it. <laughs>
0: yeah, take that, JFK. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> so I always sort of ask, we, we frequently discuss Warren G. Harding on our White House at Night tour, uh, and I usually will ask my groups, you know, who they think the president was who had the most sex or who was like the most like sexually like uh, extravagant. Uh, and a lot of times JFK comes up because of his reputation and his handsomeness. And I'm like, you would think, but no, it's no. Warren G. Harding.
1: Warren G. Harding.
0: So here we, we made it. To Warren G Harding, we had to do him in 2020 because this has been a heck of a year, and we we needed to have this episode for for everyone's enjoyment.
1: Yes, uh, the 2020 deserves Warren Harding. Like we, this is our holiday episode. We've had a long hard year. You've had a long tough year. There's been a pandemic. We need a little Warren Harding um, in order to make everything at least a little bit better. <laughs>
0: So that is it for us today. We want to thank our listeners so much, as always, for listening in. Thank you so much for those of you who subscribe and follow us regularly. Uh, We definitely are loving your reviews. If you uh, post a review about the podcast, we'll be sure to shout you out on the podcast. So leave your handle, your name, whatever you want us to shout out. We'll be sure to do that. But thank you to everybody who um, is listening and subscribing. It means a lot to us. We also want to hear from you. If you want to give us a shout out, if you want to uh, ask questions, make suggestions, if you want to pitch the pod on a topic, we're making our way to the end of our first season of episodes. So if you have a suggestion for an episode or you're curious about a topic, now is the time to send us a pitch. You can find us at tour guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram and at tour guide Tell on Twitter. And of course, you can email us tour guide Tell all at gmail.com
1: if you want to be a patreon and support the pod uh we have patreon tour guide tell all and we love our patrons so very much the either we have a shop you can get tote bags and t-shirts and stickers and all kinds of fun goodies Uh, our patrons get early access to episodes and special episodes and some uh, discounts on the shop and all kinds of fun things so um, we love our patrons and thank you guys so very much for coming along we have a bunch of really great episodes lined up uh, for the rest of december and we will be back with you next week thank you bye thank you guys so much bye
0: Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All. Or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.